0: I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Welcome to this podcast of The People's Pharmacy. You can find previous podcasts and more information on a range of health topics at peoplespharmacy.com. Do you have a favorite flavor? Humans have been seeking out delicious foods for millennia. Did that affect human evolution? This is The People's Pharmacy with Terry and Joe Graydon.
1: Evolutionary biologist Rob Dunn thinks we should be paying far more attention to the deliciousness of food. How did flavor shape the behavior of our ancestors? Did they hunt some tasty species to extinction?
0: I'm particularly fond of chapulines, especially if they come from Oaxaca, Mexico. They're grasshoppers. For many Oaxacanians, they are a delicacy.
1: Our guest will tell us about the culinary culture of chimpanzees. And how dinner makes us human.
0: Coming up on The People's Pharmacy, how deliciousness shapes our behavior.
1: In The People's Pharmacy health headlines, long COVID has another serious complication. A study utilizing data from the Department of Veterans Affairs analyzed records of 181,000 patients who were treated for the infection between March 2020 and in September 2021. Those who had lingering symptoms a month after recovery were 46% more likely to get a diagnosis of type 2 diabetes later. The absolute risk was two more patients out of 100. That may not seem too scary, but when you calculate the millions who have developed long COVID, it adds up to a large number of people who may need regular testing and treatment. Even people with mild-to-moderate COVID cases were at increased risk.
0: The results of a large dietary supplement trial called COSMOS are finally in, and they're encouraging. This randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial had more than 21,000 volunteers taking cocoa extract, or placebo, and multivitamins, or placebo. During the trial of 3.6 years, Half the participants took flavanol capsules, while the other half took look-alike placebo pills. The main outcome was a conglomerate of angina, a heart attack, stroke, revascularization, artery surgery, or death from one of these problems. Not quite 4% of the people taking cocoa extract had such an event, compared to about 4.25% of those taking placebo. The difference was not statistically significant the results from a secondary outcome were more impressive. Volunteers taking cocoa extract were 27% less likely to die from cardiovascular complications during the study. When the investigators factored in who actually took the pills into their analysis, the risk of death dropped by 39%. The COSMOS trial also evaluated whether multivitamins reduced the risk of cancer. In all but one type of cancer, there was no difference. However, people taking vitamins were 38% less likely to develop lung cancer during the study.
1: Folate is a B vitamin found in leafy green vegetables such as spinach, romaine lettuce, kale, and arugula. It's also found in asparagus, beets, broccoli, Brussels sprouts, and beans. A new study in the journal Evidence-Based Mental Health tracked more than 27,000 older people for more than 10 years. The investigators measured blood folate levels and noted diagnoses of dementia. A folate deficiency was associated with a 68% higher risk for dementia and triple the risk of death from any cause. The authors recommend that doctors measure folate levels in older individuals and take steps to correct any deficiencies.
0: Many studies suggest that following a plant-based diet could have significant health benefits. However, data from 26,000 people in the Canadian Community Health Survey failed to reveal protection from cardiovascular disease. Each person filled out a questionnaire about what they had eaten the previous day. These data were analyzed for their adherence to a plant-based dietary index, the Dietary Guidelines for American Adherence Index, and the EAT-Lancet Reference Diet Score. These are all measures of dietary quality. Although two of these indices were meaningful measures of plant-based eating among Canadians, the investigators found no link between plant-based eating and a reduction in cardiovascular disease.
1: Some of the most popular blood pressure drugs in the world are called ARBs, angiotensin receptor blockers. They're also prescribed for patients with heart failure. Some common products include Losartan, Valsartan, and herbisartin. A number of formulations have been recalled over the last few years because of contamination with possible carcinogens called nitrosamines. A new study analyzed data from 15 randomized controlled trials including nearly 140,000 patients. The researcher reports that an excess risk of cancer starts to appear after approximately three years of exposure to a high-dose ARB and increases with time. For lung cancer, the risk was statistically significant after two and a half years. Whether this elevated risk of cancer is due to contamination or some inherent property of ARBs, has not been determined. And that's the health news from The People's Pharmacy this week. Welcome to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Terry Graydon. And
0: I'm Joe Graydon. What flavors do you crave? Do you have a sweet tooth or do you prefer salty things? Some of us really crave sour flavors.
1: Evolutionary anthropologists have thought a lot about diet, but mostly in terms of nutritional content. How much did flavor matter to our hominid ancestors?
0: To find out, we're talking to an old friend of the People's Pharmacy. Dr. Rob Dunn is an ecologist and evolutionary biologist who focuses on the biodiversity of humans. He's the William Neal Reynolds Distinguished Professor in the Department of Applied Ecology at North Carolina State University and in the Center for Evolutionary Hologenomics at the University of Copenhagen. Rob Dunn is the author of several books, including A Natural History of the Future, What the Laws of Biology Tell Us About the Destiny of the Human Species, and his latest Delicious! The Evolution of Flavor and How It Made Us Human with Monica Sanchez.
1: Welcome back to the People's Pharmacy,
2: Dr. Rob Dunn. Oh, it's great to be back on the show. Thank you for having me again.
0: Dr. Dunn, we are so delighted to have you with us. Um, but before we get going, please, would you tell us what an ecologist, and evolutionary biologist is, and then... What the heck is evolutionary hologenomics?
2: Oh, no. Well, this is all a mouthful. So, an ecologist is, is what I was first trained as. And an ecologist looks to nature for nature's rules about how species interact with each other. And so, it, it's sort of a, a nature's busybody. So, we try to figure out who's gossiping with who, who's eating who, and what are the sort of general patterns and all of those. Back and forth relationships, an evolutionary biologist thinks about those same sorts of things, but thinks about them on our on our big evolutionary tree. And so, how have the interactions between species changed through time? Wh- when did ants evolve? Um, what are ants related to? And then, evolutionary hologenomics is the big messy one, but it's this the idea of studying an organism as a function of its genes and the genes of all the things that live on it. And so it's a model of studying the world where you can sort of imagine taking a mouse and, well, let's take something I don't mind squishing up. So take an ant and squish it up and find all the genes of the ant and all the genes of the bacteria in the ant's gut and all the genes of the viruses that attack those bacteria and we can now study all of that all at once. And, and when we do that, and when we do it in an evolutionary context, it's evolutionary hologenomics. And so it's it's using new tools to study the big picture story of life.
1: It sounds messy, but... Exciting. And your curiosity has inspired us so much. We have talked to you over the years about uh, the ecology of our bodies, what's living in our armpits and our belly buttons. What's the role of stomach acid and the ecology of our homes? Why are we never home alone? Because there's stuff living in our mattresses and our shower heads and goodness knows what else. And you're interested also in fermented foods like pickles and sourdough, and I'm beginning to pick up a pattern here. So how did you get interested in flavor?
2: So it's, it started really as a kind of a side effect of my career or my wife's career. So I'm an ecologist, evolutionary biologist. My wife is a medical anthropologist. And around the world, we would again and again find ourselves in dinner parties or at the bar with people who who knew about food and flavor from some unique perspective. And so we'd be with some world expert on cheese or we would eating cheese, or we'd be in a dinner where we were surrounded by primatologists talking about the ways chimpanzees eat. And we recognized that there were all these stories of food and flavor that were, they were kind of hidden from, from other people. And so we thought, Oh, what fun it would be to share those stories And and so we started to write a book, and the book started a long time ago. But in the first incarnations of the book, it was just really a a series of these vignettes about the experiences of food and flavor and what different fields, what light different fields shed on on food and flavor. But as we started to work on the book, we realized that there was a bigger idea here. And the bigger idea was that flavor has actually been a, a A central feature of our human story and indeed the story of of many even most animal species through time and it had been kind of neglected and so then it seemed like there was an opportunity to tell a bigger story while also sharing these these vignettes of our own experiences and 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 so we embarked on this project together to to write a book on flavor
1: well, your book, Delicious, The Evolution of Flavor and How It Made Us Human, is really terrific. I must say that. And you talk about the role of deliciousness in shaping the behavior of early humans. Why was that so important?
2: Well, so um, one of the key moments in early human evolution is, this, is a, about 1.9 million years ago when we know human brains uh, become much, much larger. And there's ferocious debate about just what happened to allow human brains to become much, much larger. And if you go to, out for drinks with a bunch of paleoanthropologists, this is something they'll fight over for hours and hours. But as we talk to people about that key moment, one of the things we recognized is that all of their different arguments about what might have happened in the moment, that moment, all related in some way or another to flavor. And so even though they disagreed about exactly what happened, they agreed that flavor was central to that moment. And so, for example, one of the potential things that happened at that time is that our ancestors might have figured out how to access much, much more honey. And the way in which people would typically describe that story would be they'd say, well, our ancestors figured out how to get more honey, so they obtained more calories. Once they had more calories, they could evolve bigger brains because brains need lots of calories. But what we did was to recognize that in the moment uh, that our ancestors were choosing to eat honey, they weren't doing it because one day their brains would be bigger. They weren't doing it because they would get more calories. They were doing it because the honey was delicious. And the same thing with cooking food, the same thing with beginning to eat uh, mussels, the same thing with fermentation. When those, th- when those food transitions happened, whatever the ultimate consequences of those transitions the reasons our ancestors ate those new foods in the first place is because they tasted good. They were pleasurable. And so we try to, to squeeze that pleasure back into our human story.
0: Well, it's, it's not just humans. I mean, you, you, you talk about cats. You talk about hummingbirds, panda bears. Why is it important for all of these other animals and species?
2: Well so th- think about your think about a panda bear out in the wild having to choose its food. It needs a way to choose what to eat and its body can only accommodate some kinds of food. And so its system of taste and more generally its system of flavor is what tells it what to eat. It rewards it with pleasure for finding the things that its body needs. And so flavor is really this ancient system for finding what we need in, in nature and eating more of it and avoiding those things that are dangerous. And all the animals around us are using this system to make sense of the world. And to me, that's a really marvelous sentiment that if you watch the birds around you, you know, that their decisions are being guided uh, to a great extent by pleasure, by, by what hits their taste receptors. And we've kind of overlooked that.
0: Well, the title of your book is Delicious. And and I kind of wonder how you define delicious. When we lived in a little village in the state of Oaxaca, Mexico, the the little boys would bring us chapulines. Now, chapulines are grasshoppers, and they were cooked in the copa. In the
1: komal, but actually they didn't bring them to us because we would not have known what to do with them, but their mothers, at a certain time of year when the grasshoppers were plentiful, would send the the little boys out and their mothers would parboil them and then toast them on the komal with garlic and salt.
0: And they were very tasty, and we've subsequently learned that uh, there's a saying in the state of Oaxaca, in the city where we lived. If you eat chapulines, you will always come back to Oaxaca, and that's true. We're we're looking forward to going back to Oaxaca pretty soon. So, how do you define delicious? Because I think most Americans would go grasshoppers. grasshoppers.
2: <sighs> well, I, I will say that you made them sound very appetizing, and I'm ready to go to Oaxaca. <laughs> um, come with us. Well, I, I'd love to. Um, so, so. One element of deliciousness is really sort of the most ancient and simplest part, which is taste per se. And so that's sweet, it's salty, it's bitter, it's umami. And those aspects of deliciousness are really pretty hardwired. Your brain experiences a signal that isn't very modulated by learning. But on top of that, a really fundamental part of flavor and deliciousness is smell. And most mammals do most of their smelling outside of their nose. So they sniff things. And so if you think about a dog's long nose reaching into the leaf litter, sniffing all of those aroma molecules. But the shape of our head means that in addition to, to sniffing things outside of our mouths, that we also actually sniff things once they're in our mouths. So it's called retronasal olfaction. And it's a bit of a long explanation, but it's important because if you think about the whole flavor experience, that olfactory piece, that smell piece, is really an enormous part of the overall experience. And in, in contrast to taste, it's almost all learned, right? And and so what you find to be delicious, uh, and what I find to be delicious, are very much going to be a function of our cultural experiences. And that starts in utero, but it goes on through our lives. And so I think this is a really fantastic part of being human, that which things on a plate please us, tells us something about ourselves, and, and really the details of our lives.
1: You're listening to Rob Dunn, the William Neal Reynolds Distinguished Professor in the Department of Applied Ecology at North Carolina State University. His latest book is Delicious! The Evolution of Flavor and How It Made Us Human, co-authored with medical anthropologist Monica Sanchez.
0: After the break, we'll talk about some of the flavors that people particularly enjoy. There are some flavors that certain individuals
1: love and others really hate. Why
0: hasn't science paid more attention to taste?
1: We'll get some examples of a culinary dance between plants and animals, as well as other organisms. Why does fruit benefit from
0: being eaten? How could flavor have played a role in the extinction of species that humans hunted? And we'll also get Dr. Dunn's ideas on how dinner makes us human.
1: You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon.
0: This podcast is made possible in part by Coco Via maker of the most proven and concentrated flavanol extract in the market today, Cocoa Pro Cocoa Extract.
1: With the proven power of cocoa flavanols, Cocoa Via supplements support blood flow from head to toe. This National Physical Fitness and Sports Month Give your heart and brain 100% and support a healthy you with the most proven Flavanol Bioactive. Get 20% off your Cocovia order from May 8th through May 22nd using the discount code fitnesspod at cocovia.com.
0: These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Joe Graydon.
1: And I'm Terry
0: Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Cocovia, the maker of high-potency flavanol supplements that support cognitive, cognitive, and cardiovascular health. More information at cocovia.com.
1: Why is fruit sweet? Is there an evolutionary advantage for plants to have fruits that are tasty? Likewise, how do our taste buds shape our food choices?
0: Could our taste preferences have led to the extinction of species like woolly mammoths or mastodons? Anthony Bourdain traveled the world to discover unusual flavors and cuisines. Like him, our ancestors may have been willing to go to a lot of trouble for a delicious meal instead of settling for mere nutrition.
1: Our guest today is Rob Dunn. He's an ecologist and evolutionary biologist interested in the biodiversity of humans. He's the William Neal Reynolds Distinguished Professor in the Department of Applied Ecology at North Carolina State University. He also teaches in the Center for Evolutionary Hologenomics at the University of Copenhagen. Rob Dunn is the author of several books, including The Wildlife of Our Bodies and Never Home Alone. His latest books are A Natural History of the Future, What the Laws of Biology Tell Us About the Destiny of the Human Species, and Delicious, The Evolution of Flavor and How It Made Us Human, co-authored with medical anthropologist Monica Sanchez.
0: Dr. Dunn, you were just talking about uh, the, the different flavors that people like. And I have to be honest with you, I love sour. I mean, if it's sour cherries, mm, scrumptious. Pomegranates, oh, I'm in heaven.
1: He even eats gooseberries, which most people find too sour to
2: be palatable.
0: Oh, I love gooseberries. I love some gooseberries right now. My absolute favorite, currants, red currants. I mean, it's such a unique flavor. I I just could eat them forever. But there are a lot of people who go, that's too sour for me. So help us understand a little bit about flavors and why some people... You know, like one thing and hate something else. So
2: one of the unique features of the aroma part of flavors is that they're learned. And part of that learning happens in utero. And so so if a pregnant mother prefers certain foods and those foods have uh, strong aromas, that mother's baby at birth, really within minutes of birth, if tested, Will prefer those same aromas, and so this is true of garlic. It's it's true of stinky fermented fish. It's true of anise. It's true even of some vegetables. And so this first layer of what some people like and other people uh, dislike is really this very early part of our learning, and it's very hard. It's, it, you never get a clean slate, and so you're learning. One layer of learning builds upon another layer of learning. And so at any moment in our life, we have all these experiences stacked up. It's kind of like a card catalog where our brains are learning smells. And then if they have pleasant experiences or if our mother ate them, we rank them as good. If they have bad experiences, we rank them as bad. And then there are little tricks in the system, too. And so if you eat something and you throw up um, afterwards you immediately learn that that food's aroma is to be a bad aroma. It's called the Garcia effect. And so there's this whole system of learning that leads into what one person likes and what another person doesn't like. But on top of that, there are also genetic differences between people. And and so we know this for aromas, but we also know it for tastes. And so different people have different bitter taste receptors. And, And so one person might taste Brussels sprouts as very bitter and another person might not taste that bitterness at all, just as a function of which receptors they have. Now, Joe, your example was sour. And sour, which which we've done a fair amount of work trying to understand and study, is actually still, still a little bit mysterious in that one researcher has identified one of the genes associated with sour taste, but we don't really know how variable that gene is from person to person. And so it's possible, though, that some of the differences between you and somebody who doesn't like sour taste are genetic. And some studies of of young children suggest that there are uh, some children who really, really love sour and some who don't. And those data look as though there may be a genetic component. And so it's a mix of, of learning and genetics that all come together each time you eat. And in some cases, we can pick apart the components of learning and pick apart the components of genetics. But, but sour is still a, a great culinary mystery.
0: And I have to be honest, I am not very fond of Brussels sprouts. I, I've had to work really hard <laughs> to, to be able to get them down.
1: Rob, I am wondering why science hasn't paid more attention to taste.
2: Well, um, I mean, part of it is it's, it's, not, it's a little bit difficult to study. And some of the tools we need to study taste we've only had uh, for the last few years and So once people identified which genes, for example, were associated with bitter taste receptors, it was, much, it was easy to go back and then see how those genes compared among different species or among different people. But until you knew the genes, you couldn't do it. But I think the other element um, is that taste and flavor intersect with many, many different disciplines. And in some ways, no discipline claimed them. Except sensory biology, but sensory biology is sort of off on its own. And so ecologists like me assumed somebody else was doing it. Food scientists had other things they were focused on. And and so it was it was between things. But I think the other piece is that it relates to pleasure. And I, I think often scientists find pleasure to be a little bit too whimsical or not serious enough. And and so it's kind of stayed at the margins. And so, like, if I talk about the pleasures of a crow and what, what pleasures a crow finds in a particular food, it'll make ecologists a little bit anxious that I'm using that word.
1: <laughs> and, and they might wonder, how do you know what a crow finds pleasurable?
2: I, I, and I don't I don't know what it finds pleasurable but I do know that it, it has all of the wiring necessary to be pleased <laughs> or displeased
1: right and I have no doubt that crows are pretty clear on their preferences now that you've looked at this from really an, an ecological perspective you you've suggested that there's kind of a, a culinary dance between plants and animals and other organisms can you explain that please
2: so wh- one part of the dance is that plants for the most part, with some exceptions I'll get into, plants don't want to be eaten. And and so they invest in chemicals that will ward off species that will eat them. And in some cases, those chemicals are extraordinarily dangerous. And so they ward off a goat or a sheep or a grasshopper by causing that animal distress or even killing it. But the other thing that plants can do is they can respond to the taste receptors of those animals. And so goat taste receptors, goat bitter taste receptors, have been relatively unchanged for a long time. And so if plants are mostly getting eaten by goats, they can produce the compounds that trigger those bitter taste receptors and warn the goats off, even if the plant itself is not that dangerous. They trigger a displeasure in the goat, and the goat goes somewhere else. But it's a dance because the taste receptors can then evolve if, if the um, goats that continue to eat the plant are more likely to succeed, and the chemistry of the, of the plants can also evolve. And one of the ways that we actually see this dance is when we look at our, at our spices and our herbs, because most of the, the chemicals we use in our spices and herbs actually evolved as defenses against animals, and we use them in small doses, and so they're not dangerous, but we're sort of dancing with, with that danger and, and adding just a little bit to, to alter our, um, our food. The other part of the dance, which we, we come back to, is that some, sometimes plants want to get eaten. And so fruits, for example, are, are really the, the chefs of the plant world. Fruits have evolved uh, to woo animals toward themselves and then to be eaten and so to be pleasurable in the eating. And so that's another part of this dance.
0: Why? Why would they want to be eaten?
2: It's all about mothers. So so fruits, if, if seeds fall right below their mother tree, they have to compete with their mothers. And so their mothers outshade them, their mothers outcompete them for nutrients in the soil. And so like good mothers, the plants evolutionarily figured out a way around this problem, which was to find ways to get those seeds farther away. And so sometimes they put a wing on the seed, which is what you see with a maple tree, for example. But in many cases, what plants do is they produce a fruit and that fruit is then eaten by it, what we call a seed disperser. So a bird or a bat or a human, the thing goes farther away, voids its bowels and deposits the seed, hopefully intact, where it then grows. And if it's lucky, it grows up in a place that's more open and that has less competition. And this may seem like a really obscure sort of uh, feature of the world, but all of the fruits we eat evolve for the, just this reason. And so it's actually a really, uh, really central phenomenon to our daily lives.
0: Wow. That, that is so fascinating. I had no idea. Now, you, you also have suggested that flavor may have played an outsized role in the extinction of species that humans hunted why flavor
2: so i I think one of the traps that's really easy to fall into when thinking about non-human animals and thinking about our ancestors as well as thinking about other peoples is very often to assume that they're all what ecologists call optimally foraging that they go out into the world and they find what they need they get all the calories that they need and they're not thinking about anything else And so most studies of hunting by humans have used this approach. And so they assume that hunter-gatherers are going out to maximize the number of calories they obtain. And so this is to imagine hunter-gatherers as something like uh, culinary robots. But when people actually go and talk to hunter-gatherers or even just groups that rely heavily on hunting, what they quickly hear is that, no, in fact, that that those individuals will uh, do more work in order to find prey items that taste better that there are prey items that don't taste good and that they don't hunt howler monkeys for example are still common throughout much of uh central south america and one of the reasons they're common is they taste terrible and and so what we argue in the book is is just that we need to breathe a little bit more humanity back into how we think about humans and hunting and and recognize that in, in most cases when humans are hunting, they're likely to, to base some of their decisions on how good something tastes or how bad something tastes. And over time, that's likely to have, have led disfavored things that tasted really good. And we see this in historic time on islands. When humans showed up at re- remote islands, they very quickly ate the things that tasted uh, delicious. And so dodos, for example, couldn't fly away and, and were apparently quite tasty. But, but there's no reason we shouldn't imagine that also being true 10,000 years ago, 100,000 years ago, or a million years ago.
1: Now, you describe to step away from humans for just a minute and turn to another primate, you describe a culinary culture of chimpanzees. And I think that phrase would probably surprise a lot of people. What do you mean?
2: Yes, that's that's a great question. So since the work of Jane Goodall, we've known that different chimpanzee populations uh, use different tools to access foods. And so Jane Goodall studied the chimps at Gombe and found that they used one kind of stick that they would manufacture to get one kind of ant, another kind of stick for another kind of ant, yet a third kind of stick to gather termites. And in the years since Goodall's work, what we've learned what chimpanzee researchers have learned is that different populations of chimpanzees use different tools to eat different foods and that those traditions are passed down from one chimpanzee generation to the next and that those differences don't relate just to which foods are available they just they relate primarily to what those chimpanzees have learned to eat and learned to like and and so it seems Uh, Not too far-fetched to think of those differences as culinary cultures. And so just to give a simple example that relates back to the Oaxaca case, at Gombe, where Jan Goodall worked, there were two ant species that the chimps ate and eat, one of which was a driver ant, an army ant, and one of which was a chromatogaster ant. 70 kilometers south, in another site where chimpanzees have been studied, basically the same forest, all the same ant species, The chimpanzees eat two totally different ant species that taste totally different. And this has been true for 50 years. And so there's there's really this culture passed on in these chimpanzee communities that relates to what they're eating. And the other part of this that's so fascinating to me is that most of the foods that the chimpanzees are eating with tools, they're foods that are more delicious than that they would otherwise have available to themselves.
1: So they're willing to go to that extra effort of making the tool and using it.
2: Yeah, they they go to the effort to make the tool to eat the thing that tastes good.
1: Dr. Dunn, you and your co-author and wife, Monica Sanchez, conclude your book Delicious with a description of a village fete in the French Pyrenees, and you call that chapter Dinner Makes Us Human. Please tell us why.
2: So, many non-human species will share food, and so sharing food is not uniquely human, and so chimpanzees will share food. And we know that when individual chimpanzees share food with another chimp, typically of their same social status, that they get a dose of oxytocin, which is the same chemical that mothers get when they hold their babies. And, and so we can see in that a kind of nascent camaraderie around food and sharing. But what they don't have is the ability to gather together and not just to share that food, but to talk about that food, to think about what that food means, and to develop community around that food. And they very much don't have the ability to invite strangers to share that food with them. And so the the details of what we experience around a dinner table with strangers, with friends, an experience that seems so rare these days and yet is so important to us, is really something very unique to humanity and I think very special to who we are and who we can be. It's, it's in many ways the best of us. It's, it's humans as communal creatures making a bigger community, sharing across that community and working together through language and friendship to do something and enjoy something that they couldn't do on their own.
1: You're listening to Dr. Rob Dunn. He's an ecologist and evolutionary biologist interested in the biodiversity of humans. He's the William Neal Reynolds Distinguished Professor in the Department of Applied Ecology at North Carolina State University. He also teaches in the Center for Evolutionary Hologenomics at the University of Copenhagen. Rob Dunn is the author of several books, including The Wildlife of Our Bodies, The Man Who Touched His Own Heart, and Never Home Alone. His latest books are A Natural History of the Future, What the Laws of Biology Tell Us About the Destiny of the Human Species, and Delicious, The Evolution of Flavor and How It Made Us Human, co-authored with medical anthropologist Monica Sanchez.
0: After the break, we'll take a look at the future of nature. What makes us think we can control it? Technology can be useful
1: for taking care of our health, but what problems does it solve and which does it
0: create? Dr. Dunn describes a megaplate microbial evolution experiment that demonstrates the power of natural selection.
1: How is this the key to human health and survival?
0: Can our species really learn to live within nature's laws?
1: You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon.
0: This podcast is made possible in part by Gaia Herbs. For more than 30 years, Gaia Herbs has nurtured the connection between people and plants to deliver nature's vitality. Their full-spectrum formulas are designed to provide an herb's complete array of beneficial compounds with nothing artificial to get in the way. Learn more at GaiaHerbs.com. That's G-A-I-A (music) Herbs.com.
1: Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Terry Graydon.
0: And I'm Joe Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Cocovia, the maker of high-potency flavanol supplements that support cognitive and cardiovascular health. More information at cocovia.com.
1: Are humans capable of learning to appreciate nature's laws? How does natural selection work? And why is it crucial for the survival of our species?
0: We're talking today with Dr. Rob Dunn, an ecologist and evolutionary biologist who focuses on the biodiversity of humans. He's the William Neal Reynolds Distinguished Professor in the Department of Applied Ecology at North Carolina State University. Dr. Dunn is the author of several books, including the latest, Delicious. The Evolution of Flavor and How It Makes Us Human with his wife and co-author Monica Sanchez and A Natural History of the Future, What the Laws of Biology Tell Us About the Destiny of the Human Species.
1: Dr. Dunn, in uh, your book, A Natural History of the Future, you write about the Mississippi River as a metaphor for our idea that we could control nature. What should we learn from that metaphor? We,
2: we have as humans, have a tendency to hubris and a tendency toward the idea that we're in control of the living world around us. And the truth is, the living world is mostly not yet understood, mostly not yet studied, and our best attempts to control that nature nature are always partial and the river in this context is a model of what we see when we fail to recognize that relationship to nature in that when we tried to tame the mississippi river we tried to channel it We tried to build up levees so that it couldn't move back and forth. Again and again, what we've seen with the Mississippi River is it breaks through those levees and it floods towns. And as climate change worsens, this will become more true. So my father's family grew up along the Mississippi River in Greenville, Mississippi. And they grew up subject to the Mississippi's power. They, they lived behind the levee, and repeatedly the Mississippi River would pour over the levee into their town, flood them out of their houses, and reassert itself into the story of humanity. And so the st- stories I grew up hearing about nature were stories in which humans tried to control nature in really simple ways, and nature periodically reminded humans and humanity of its own power. And now that I've spent two decades studying the living world, I see again and again the same kind of story, the same same ways in which we try to control nature as though we were all powerful and all knowing, and in doing so, suffer the consequences of that hubris.
0: You know, Rob, I think modern medicine has a somewhat similar approach. I mean, I think there are a lot of researchers and probably even a lot of people that think technology can overcome most challenges. Uh, The vaccines for COVID, for example. I mean, I think scientists were congratulating themselves for solving the problem. And everybody was, wow, you did that so fast. It's so amazing. And everybody was congratulating themselves. And then here we are, 430 million COVID cases worldwide and 6 million deaths. Now, that's not to say that that vaccinations weren't important, but it wasn't like the magic bullet that everybody had hoped it was going to be. So can, can technology really solve all of our health problems? So I, I think
2: the COVID case is a great one um, in that the, the vaccines have, have been an astonishing testament to science and the power of global science. And they've saved so many lives. And, and, and really, their speed is just extraordinary, the sp- speed of their development. At the same time, what we needed along with those vaccines was an understanding of the evolutionary processes through which the virus was going to continue to evolve. And so the ways in which the virus continued to evolve are very much like the ways in which the Mississippi River continues to push against uh, its banks and, and reassert itself. And the good news is that we've actually become really quite effective at anticipating some of those changes. But doing so requires spending as much time on being ready for those changes and thinking through what the next steps are going to need to look like as it does on the technological wonder that that the vaccines represent or that the channeling of the Mississippi represents. We, We need to have both pieces. We need to plan for the ways in which nature responds to us as well as planning for these immediate challenges, and that secondary piece, that secondary kind of planning, it's not nearly as sexy as the vaccines, but it, but it's as we all know now, it's extraordinarily important. And, and I think if we look at challenges in nature of many types, they have this same feature that we the technology helps us, and you know, technology's saving many many lives every day. But we need to couple the use of technologies with a holistic understanding of the bigger picture.
1: Dr. Dunn, in the Natural History of the Future, you offer an example of microbial evolution, their, their ability to evolve, their power to evolve. You describe a mega plate experiment. Would you please tell us about that and why it's so important?
2: Sure. So, so this is an experiment in which Michael Bame and, and colleagues set out to understand how fast bacteria that are not resistant to antibiotics, which is to say that they can be killed by antibiotics, how fast they can evolve resistance to the antibiotics such that they're essentially invincible relative to that particular antibiotic. And baim could have done the experiment in a little Petri dish, But he wanted to get a big picture view of what was happening. And so he made a mega plate, a giant petri dish, a meter wide, if my memory serves. And it was divided into columns. And and so the outermost columns where the bacteria were introduced had no antibiotics. And then as you went toward the center of the giant petri dish, there were ever higher concentrations of antibiotics until you got to the middle where there was kind of an atomic concentration of antibiotics that should kill anything. And what BAME then did was to release bacteria on either end of the giant Petri dish into the Petri dish that were entirely susceptible to the antibiotics. They had no genetic machinery for warding off the antibiotics. And so one scenario might've been that those bacteria moved in, they grew across the Petri plate, and then they got to the, the column with antibiotics and they, they might've just stopped. And that would be a case where you had no evolution, no ability of the microbes to evolve in response to the antibiotics. That's not what happened. Instead, what happened is that many different lineages of those bacteria independently evolved the genes necessary to cope with that first concentration of antibiotics. And so if you watch the video, it's like water spilling over a levee. And then those bacteria fill those columns. But then they get to the higher concentration of antibiotics, and they look like they're stopped for a little bit. But then some of the bacteria evolve the ability to get into the higher concentration of the antibiotics. And this happens again and again until they get to the middle of the plate, to the atomic concentration of antibiotics, and they grow through that as well. And on its own, to see this happen once for, for Boehm and his colleagues was really sublime. The sublime, the terrible sublime. But what BAME did was to repeat the experiment again and again, and again and again this happened, and it happened after only 12 days. And so in 12 days, this use of antibiotics in the Petri dish uh, triggered the evolution of super-resistant bacteria. And this is what happens in our bodies. It's what happens in hospitals. It's what happens all around us when we use antibiotics in those situations in which we don't need them.
0: And the moral of the tale?
2: We need to use antibiotics, but we need to be very judicious in when we use them. We need to use them when we have infections that require them. And in fact, that accounts for a a minor uh, part of the use of antibiotics globally. And as you well know, many antibiotic uh, prescriptions are for viruses for which they have no utility. Um, A huge proportion of our antibiotics are used to help pigs grow which causes all sorts of downstream problems. And so we need to take these antibiotics, which are an amazing technology that have saved hundreds of millions of lives and use them very carefully and very wisely so as to prevent our daily lives from becoming that Petri dish.
0: Now, Dr. Dunn, you say that understanding the law of natural selection is key to human health and survival you mean humans haven't become exempt from natural selection?
2: Natural selection is operating on us and around us every day. It's what we've seen with the virus that causes COVID 19. The new variants of COVID 19, that virus, have evolved in the context of natural selection on individual human bodies. And the specific case of that virus is really remarkable and terrible and how it's affected us all globally. But it's just one conspicuous manifestation of what's happening all around us. If you look at rats in cities, the rats in different cities are now evolving along separate evolutionary trajectories, one relative to another. The pigeons in Boston and the pigeons in New York are evolving on separate trajectories. The German cockroaches in houses are evolving resistance to roach baits. And, and so this evolution is, is everywhere around us, and we're still evolving, albeit slowly, but the dominant narrative of, of evolution in our lives is how these other species are evolving in response to what we do. We're, we're, we're a giant, walking, pesticide-producing, antibiotic-spreading uh, evolutionary experiment.
1: Dr. Dunn, you write about the Law of Dependence. Could you briefly explain that and tell us why it's important?
2: Um, that's, That's a great question. So the Law of Dependence simply states that we depend on other species to survive. But what's unique about human dependence is that we depend on thousands and thousands of other species. And this is important because I think often when we imagine the future we forget about this dependence and so we imagine that we can draw the rest of the living world um, as being somehow outside of what we're planning for and we see this when the billionaires try to fling themselves into space and imagine space colonies you know they're not accounting for these this dependence nobody's even begun to talk really about if you if you put a colony on, on mars how are those new martian people going to get their necessary gut microbes where are the plants that they might grow inside domes going to get their root microbes? Where are the plant leaf microbes going to come from? The, our connections are, are, are so many and so intimate that to imagine we can go it alone um, is, is really a problem.
0: In summarizing your amazing books and the one in particular that we're talking about now, A Natural History of the Future, you suggest that if we stop trying to control nature and learn to live within its laws, we might be able to reap the endless gifts of our beautiful planet. Is our species actually capable of doing that?
2: So I I think when I give talks about this work and I engage the public and, and I get a chance to talk to to people who know about disciplines different than those that I'm specialized. And what I find is many, many people with optimism about our potential to do great things. And I see it in architects, for example, I see it in landscape architects, I see it in urban planners. And so I think there's a hunger to make better plans for our future. But I think to do that, we're going to need to have much better conversations across Uh, disciplines across kinds of knowledge about what we can and should do. And obviously, the national discourse makes one feel pessimistic about these things. But I think talking to individual humans and thinking about individual decisions we make in our own lives uh, still give me a lot of hope and optimism for what we can do.
0: Well, can you give me some examples of what you and your family are doing, what your students are doing, what you're encouraging people to to do to change the trajectory that we seem to be on.
2: I'll give a simple example that, that I've I was engaged a couple of years ago by a an architect or landscape architect, uh Joe Chambers. And Joe really wanted to think about how to build low income housing that took advantage of the benefits of nature and brought those benefits to people. And he was already thinking about how to bring native plants into the landscaping he was doing around buildings and how to establish green rooftops and and make those sorts of changes. But he found that there were other changes um, that he didn't quite know well enough how to make on his own. And so he needed to talk to other uh, specialists. And so he reached out to think about how we might manage uh, buildings to favor good microbes. And so now I'm working with Joe to figure out how much good soil do you need around a building to benefit children and to help to provide them with good microbes? What density of plants do you need for, for mental health benefits around and in buildings? And how do you think about all of these decisions uh, and, and ways that we could make change around the buildings that he's working on? And so it's, it's a small change uh, for me because Joe you know, works on a limited number of buildings, But if we produce a good model of pulling all of these things together, it's something that could be repeated. And so that's something I'm really excited about.
0: Dr. Rob Dunn, these two wonderful books that you've written recently, first of all, the book called Delicious, The Evolution of Flavor and How It Made Us Human, and A Natural History of the Future, how... How are they connected?
2: Well, they're connected and they both relate to the, the rules of nature. And delicious relates to the rules of nature that we experience when we eat. And, and so A Natural History of the Future is really about sort of the conscious decisions we can make and thinking about the world around us. But delicious is really about the ways in which every bite we take relates in one way or another to the rules of nature. And so you can experience those rules in a less intellectualized way each time you savor a sour beer or a a currant or a a fried-up cricket.
1: Dr. Rob Dunn, thank you so much for talking with us on The People's Pharmacy today.
2: Oh, it's such a pleasure to be back on the show. I love what you do.
1: You've been listening to Dr. Rob Dunn. He's an ecologist and evolutionary biologist interested in the biodiversity of humans. He's the William Neal Reynolds Distinguished Professor in the Department of Applied Ecology at North Carolina State University. He also teaches in the Center for Evolutionary Hologenomics at the University of Copenhagen. His latest books are A Natural History of the Future, What the Laws of Biology Tell Us About the Destiny of the Human Species, and Delicious, The Evolution of Flavor and How It Made Us Human, Co-authored with medical anthropologist Monica Sanchez.
0: Lynn Siegel produced today's show. Al Wadarsky engineered. Dave Graydon edits her interviews. B.J. Lederman composed our theme music.
1: This show is a co-production of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC, with The People's Pharmacy.
0: The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Cocovia, the maker of high-potency flavanol supplements that support cognitive and cardiovascular health. More information at cocovia.com. Today's
1: show is number 1,295. You can find it online at peoplespharmacy.com. You could subscribe to our podcast through your favorite podcast provider. We post the show on our site on Monday morning.
0: At peoplespharmacy.com, you can sign up for our free online newsletter to get the latest news about COVID-19 and other important health stories. By subscribing to our newsletter, you'll also have regular access to our weekly podcast and find out ahead of time which topics we'll be covering. In Durham, North Carolina, I'm Joe Graydon.
1: And I'm Terry Graydon. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next week. Thank you for listening to the People's Pharmacy Podcast. It's an honor and a pleasure to bring you our award-winning program week in and week out. But producing and distributing this show as a free podcast takes time
0: and costs money. If you like what we do and you'd like to help us continue to produce high-quality, independent healthcare journalism, please consider chipping in.